Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. There are some uh, biblical passages that are they're very difficult to understand. You ever had that? Read the Bible and you're like, ah, I don't know what's going on there. Um, and especially the first time we read them. And they actually might be difficult for us for a long time, and we might not have complete clarity until we, until we see the Lord again. But that doesn't mean that those difficult passages can't, at the very same time, also speak very meaningfully into our lives and into our human experience in ways that nothing else in the world can. Our text from Luke chapter 13, we've been going through the life of Jesus together. We've been looking the gospel of Luke together. In many ways, our, our text today is like that. But I think that after you spend a little more time with Jesus' words in Luke chapter 13, the more they actually really speak into our experience as human beings and what all of humanity has struggled with at one point or another. The big word that we use to describe this is a word called theodicy. Has anyone ever heard of the word theodicy? Theodicy is the problem of evil in the world. And sometimes people speculate about suffering and evil in the world. And in fact, sometimes people get so enamored with that, all they do is they try to figure that problem out logically. And if you try to do that with your life, you're going to a place that will never satisfy you. And perhaps as we'll learn today, Jesus is giving us permission to not go there with our minds and our hearts. You see, the scripture, another way to put it, the scripture this morning, it names questions that pretty much every human being or everyone who actually thinks about God eventually asks. Questions like, why do bad things happen to good people? Does God cause tragedy or calamity in the world? Is tragedy in our lives, whether small or on a huge, large scale, is tragedy a punishment for sin? Is it, I did this and therefore God did this to me, or they did this and therefore God did that to them? These are the questions that we ask at times. And I think that we ask them because tragedy and calamity or bad stuff or suffering, whether it's caused by nature like the devastation we're witnessing in Mozambique and to a smaller degree in uh, Nebraska, or caused by uh, human beings like the massacre in Christchurch, New Zealand. Those tragic events, they confront us with a sort of chaos and violence in the world that challenge our sense of stability and order and what we think the world should be. And so when things like that happen, we... We seek answers. We seek answers that help us not to just recalibrate, but to reclaim our sense that this world should make sense and have order to it. And when we do that, sometimes, sometimes we settle. Sometimes we settle for difficult and cruel, even vicious answers to those big questions. We'll settle for answers like, it's because God is punishing me. It's because God is punishing them. That's why this terrible thing is happening, because God is punishing. And at times, we'll settle for answers like that because we want to preserve a sense of stability, because we often fear instability and chaos more than we fear cruel answers. A bit of that is going on here in our text today. 
there are some tragic and terrible events, not unlike the ones that we have experienced recently. And we see that the people are trying to struggle to make sense of what is going on. Luke chapter 13, verse 1, the first instance comes, comes out, says, Now there were some present at that time, they're with Jesus, and they told Jesus about the Galileans. These Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And at first you're like, mm, you know, what are we, what's going on here? This is church, let's be happy, right? But apparently Pilate, who was the Gentile leader at the time, had gone into the temple, which he was not supposed to do, which was sacrilegious, which was offending the Jewish people. He not only went into the temple and he ended the lives of certain Jewish believers that were from Galilee in the north. And the sacrifices that they were offering, they were coming to church to worship. The sacrifices that they were offering to God were combined with their own lives. And they were cruelly murdered. And that, my friends, is not unlike that absolute terrible massacre in Christ Church, New Zealand. Absolutely senseless. Now, apparently, they were, the people at that time were bringing this up to Jesus because they were perhaps thinking that there was some sort of reason that these Galileans were suffering more than the other Galileans. And it's indicated in Jesus' response. He replies to them, and he answers in verse 2. He says, do you think that these Galileans, that they were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? And so Jesus is calling out their flaw in their thinking. He's calling out the flaw in their wrestling with this big problem of evil and suffering. And he's emphatically telling them, these Galileans, these people, they weren't worse than anyone else because this happened to them. In verse 3, he says, I tell you, no. And then he says something that's shocking. He said, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. He sort of takes the inquiry into a whole different place. And I'm going to get to that in a second. But Jesus is going to take this argument a little bit even further and say, they are coming to him and they're bringing up this whole story about the Galileans. But then he's going to bring up another story about these Judeans who were in the south, who were around Jerusalem. In verse 4, he says, what about those 18? You guys know the 18. The 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. Do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem at the time? So Jesus is bringing up this example that everyone sort of knew about in the community, right? There was a natural disaster, maybe you could say, that happened. Kind of like the cyclone and the flooding in Mozambique. Or maybe it was bad construction. Maybe someone built this tower and was a terrible architect, a terrible builder. Or maybe it was just an accident and 18 people die. Did they die because they were worse than others? That God was punishing them for some reason? Jesus emphatically denies that. In verse 5, he says, I tell you no. Then he says, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. The people in Mozambique, the people in Christ Church, New Zealand, they aren't suffering because they are worse than others, Jesus doesn't go down that road. He's saying then, and he's saying now, that these people aren't being punished for their sins. And in many ways, that's good news to us, right? That 
just because something bad happens to us, something bad happens to our loved ones, something bad happens in our community, it doesn't mean that they did or we did or I did something wrong and that God is punishing for that one thing that I did. That's freedom. It's good to know. It's gospel. It's liberating. But on the other hand, if we're honest with ourselves, the questions are still nagging at us. Questions about evil and suffering and problems in this world. But it's in the midst of that that we hear Jesus say again. He says to them and he says to us, unless you repent. This season of Lent is a time of repentance. Unless you repent, you too will all perish. And so what Jesus is doing is sort of skipping over all these big ideas and pondering about the problem of suffering, which is a pursuit that no human being has been able to logically find peace in. He moves beyond general questions about why there's bad stuff in the world, and instead, Jesus makes it personal and brings it down into their life, and I hope he's bringing it down to our life today as well. And we might ask, why is Jesus doing that? Why would he sort of maybe dodge the question or sort of ignore it and then turn on them and say to them, repent? Some people are saying that he wants them just to get ready for the end times. Some people say that Jesus is helping them think about their logic and they're thinking about other people being more sinful than or Jesus is helping them not look down on others when bad things happen to them as if God were punishing them because God did something, because something wrong happened in their life. Or Jesus is pushing them beyond this sort of general reason for finding suffering in the world. But one scholar said maybe Jesus is interested in helping them with something they can actually do about it. Maybe Jesus is taking it away from this big general pondering about these big questions and philosophical stuff to their very own life. That's something they can actually do. That's something they can actually live. That's something they can actually combat evil in the world. And they can do it through this weird word called repentance. And what I'm saying is this, that in the face of tragedy, in the face of calamity, in the face of injustice, a lot of times we retreat to the big questions. And we, a lot of times we retreat to those big questions because maybe we're mad at God. Or maybe we want to instill a sense of order in our lives. Or maybe I think that sometimes we do it because we want to remove ourselves from any immediate responsibility. Those big questions about why bad things happen, in the end, they cannot be answered satisfactorily in our own minds. And in the end, they can actually be distractions from doing something about the things we can actually influence in this world that we're in. And I think, I think that is what Jesus is getting at partially when he continues on talking to them in Luke here. Verse 6, he tells them this parable. He says, a man had a fig tree. This fig tree was growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but he didn't find any. And so he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, the gardener, he said to the gardener, for three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree, and it hasn't, I haven't found any Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Anybody have fruit trees in their, in their garden or their house? Or You know what's going on here, right? If you have a fruit tree and that thing doesn't produce fruit, eventually you're going to cut that thing down. We like that. We expect that. 
That's justice. That's efficient. That's pragmatic. Don't let that worthless tree use up and take up good soil. Produce, produce, produce. The gardener intervenes into this sort of logical rationality with a voice of concern, a voice of grace, a voice of desire for the tree, for that tree to bear fruit, for that tree to live. He says, I'm going to tend to that tree. I'm going to dig around it. I'm going to feed it because I want that tree to live. And so he says in verse 8, the gardener says, sir, the gardener replied, leave it alone. Leave it alone for one more year. Please leave it alone for one more year. I'll dig around it and I'll fertilize it. And if it bears fruit next year, yes. But if not, then cut it down. Jesus, in this parable, he's confronting our practical notions of efficiency and productivity and is doing everything he can to save the tree. Just like God the Father. He doesn't strike us down every time we sin, right? Every time I do something wrong or I hurt someone else or I'm cruel to some, uh, somebody, God doesn't immediately strike me down. I'm grateful for his mercy. I just don't like it when he does it to other people because it affects my life. Jesus is confronting us. He's pointing us to the love of God the Father that he doesn't strike us down every time we sin. He sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for us He sent his son Jesus to nurture our roots, to dig around in the soil, to give us life so that we would repent and produce fruit because of Jesus. And that's what Jesus is doing when he calls the people to repent. In love, he is saying to them, I don't want you to be ripped out of the ground. I want you to live. I want you to live a life of repentance. And the first part of repentance is admitting that I'm not better than other people. The first part of repentance is admitting that just because someone else is suffering in the world doesn't mean that they're inferior to me or that I'm superior to them. The first part of repentance is admitting that we are all equally, every single one of us in the world, all equally in need of God. And when we allow God to start digging up the soil around our roots and giving us life so that we can produce fruit, that's when we're living a life of repentance. We're admitting that we need him to live. We're admitting that we depend on him to thrive and to produce and to bear fruit. And so we can actually learn quite a bit about Jesus' personal invitation here today. His invitation to repent. His invitation to all of us today, his call to us to repent is a call to be freed from the big old questions of why did this happen? He's inviting us to get off of the sidelines of philosophical ponderings and he's inviting us to live a life of repentance and dependence on God which leads to bearing fruit for him. He's saying you don't have to have the answers to all the esoteric questions about why bad things happen in order to get about a life of repentance and bearing fruit. And his words, they guide us. They guide us to actually, what would that fruit look like in our lives? And in some ways, if a wall or a tower or a building is built, it should be done with excellence, right? Because people's lives depend on it. If leaders are unjust like Pilate was to those Galileans, like Hitler and like a whole host of other leaders throughout the history of the world, we, as God's people, should stand up and speak out about it and do something about it. 
And while we may not agree with the certain religious tenets of our Muslim neighbors, right, we absolutely and categorically deny any act of violence against any human being. Because all people are created in God's image and God sent his son Jesus Christ to die for every human being. Jesus' call to repentance and to bear fruit makes a difference in the world. It's freeing and it's life-giving and it's purposeful and it actually combats the problem of evil. And he's calling us to think about that whatever we do in our lives, that we do it with excellence and we do it with knowledge that if he is tending to our roots... If he is digging up the soil of our lives, if he is nurturing us, then we can actually be the fruit that fights the problem of evil in the world. We can send aid and workers and resources and people to Mozambique and to Nebraska and to wherever there's natural disasters in the world. We can stand up for the rights of those who are oppressed. We can combat racism and ethnocentrism and sexism and ageism and all sorts of injustices. We can even create building codes that prevent towers from falling on 18 people. The list can go on and on forever, and Jesus' invitation is powerful because every single one of us in the room this morning has some sort of small area of influence, and all those small areas of influence add up to one big, powerful force that can be good overcoming evil in the world, and Jesus is inviting us into that this morning. He's saying a life of repentance and bearing fruit because of Jesus in our life. That's one small but big, powerful step to overcoming evil and brokenness and suffering in this world.